Johnson turned to the victim, Derek Brooks. I didn't mean for the gun to go off that way. Sorry, Derek. Snow Files, Season 3, Episode 43. Sorry, Derek. Maurice Johnson, Alternative Suspect. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. I guess the guy that we're going to talk about this week, for me personally, I think that maybe this is where the Bloomington Police Department really dropped the ball early on in the investigation. This guy has a history of committing these kinds of crimes, armed robberies. You know, and I've said it before, and I'll always say it, I really believe that whoever went in there and committed this crime, that's what they did. They were a robber. And this guy, you know, he had a history of doing those those kinds of crimes. And he actually, as you're going to find out, he actually did an armed robbery fairly close to that neighborhood down the street and actually shot a guy not too long after that. So I don't know if he did it or not. And that's really not what I want people to take away from it. What I want you to, you know, take away from it is that they didn't clear this person. I think the biggest mistake the EPT did early on in the investigation is they put the composite drawings out from Gerardo Gutierrez and Danny Martinez. I think we showed you guys as far as Martinez goes, he didn't see anybody. So the composite drawing they put out from him was just completely bogus. And the composite drawing from Gutierrez, you know, now they're trying to say that Gutierrez was there an hour earlier and not at the time uh, that he originally said on the night of crime. And, you know, I, I know what to believe there, but this is why we want to do the forensic testing. What if there is some physical link to the guy that we're talking about this week in the gas station? And a really strange um, thing that has happened over the years when I was in the county jail before it even been sent, a guy had came back. He'd gotten arrested or something, and, and he stopped me in the hallway of the county jail, and he asked me if I was Jamie Snow, and I said, yeah. And he said, look, you need to have your lawyers come and talk to me because I just came from Shawnee or some, some other prison here in Illinois. And he said, there's guys down there talking about this. And they said, they know it wasn't you, that it was the guy that we're talking about this week. And I had another person stop me here in Stateville years ago. And he did the same thing. Asked me if I was Jamie Snow. And I said, yeah. And he said the same thing. And it was two completely different people. And neither one of these guys had any connection to each other. So... I know how rumors get started, and I know that ultimately what can happen. So I'm not trying to really start a rumor about this dude. But what I am really trying to say is that this guy was a viable suspect that was never ruled out. Before this guy was ever ruled out, they arrested, convicted me, and, and, and sent me to prison. So that's really what we're trying to put out there. So you know, I hope you guys find it interesting, and we really would like to hear from you and what you think about it and how you feel. For safety reasons, we have chosen to keep the witnesses that came forward in the Bill Little homicide confidential in this episode. 
We will not release the names or the statements related to these witnesses. We appreciate your understanding. Within two weeks of the Clark murder, on April 16, 1991, Detective Barkus received a tip by phone. The tipster was someone in Maurice Johnson's circle and said they had been told that Johnson killed the guy at Clark Oil. A strange note by Barkus on the report says, It is unknown if they know anything for sure. Or is it because Johnson is supposed to be doing the Bloomington robberies that they assumed he had did this one too? It seems an odd statement for Barkus to speculate about. There didn't seem to be any doubt in the statement, and after having read many statements by Barkus, he certainly never said anything like that about Jamie. Another note on the bottom of the report refers to two people. They were both redacted who were interviewed by DCI Bernardini, and to see his report for details. We don't have that report. The witness also mentioned the name of someone they had told. On that same day, Burkus interviewed the witness again in person, with no others present that we are aware of. The interview was very short, and the witness again affirmed the information originally given. The following day, Detectives Ronfeld and Thomas both followed up with the witness, who gave a longer interview and many more details. This time, the witness states they were positive, in quotes, of the information given. The reports end there. We have seen no follow-up with Johnson or any of the witnesses or others who were mentioned in these reports. Maurice Johnson's criminal career started early and escalated quickly. Between December of 91 and January of 92, at the young age of 19, Johnson was charged with obstruction of justice, possession of marijuana, unlawful use of weapons, and possession of a firearm without a FOID card. He had a concealed weapon at a traffic stop. He was also charged with a DUI and another possession of marijuana charge. All of these were separate arrests on different dates. He was able to bond out with $100 each time, and charges were subsequently dropped every time. But less than a year after the Clark murder, Johnson was arrested and charged with armed robbery and attempted murder of Derek Brooks, a clerk at Kroger on East Oakland Street. February 26th, 1992, was a really long, bad day for Maurice Johnson. According to a witness who was with Johnson that day, at around 2.30 in the afternoon, she, Johnson, and another friend headed to the Northwoods Mall in Peoria. After they got back to Bloomington, they dropped Johnson off to have a visit with his child. Sometime later in that evening, she and two friends picked up Johnson and another friend by the Third Ward Club, and they all headed back to Peoria. And this is where it gets a little strange. According to multiple witness reports, the five of them had gone to Harrison Homes, a housing project in Peoria, to buy drugs. Apparently, one of the friends had given Johnson money to buy the drugs, Then Johnson was going to sell them and give his friend the money back. Two of them stayed in the car, 
while Johnson and two others went in the apartment to make the buy. But Johnson never got drugs. They came back to the car with no coats and no shoes on and said they were robbed at gunpoint and that the guys in the apartment took their money, shoes, coats, and whatever else they had on them. The witnesses said they were scared and one of them was crying. Johnson was quoted as saying, Man, I thought he was going to shoot me. They arrived back in Bloomington at around 1 a.m. and dropped Johnson and the others off. It gets a little muddy here, but at some point, the female driver stated that she drove down Robinson and picked Johnson and a friend up while they were walking. She then said she drove to the friend's grandmother's house on the 1200 block of Locust Street, and while they were there, Johnson took her car and said he was going to Normal to see a girl to get some money. By that time, it was about 2 a.m., and Johnson got back around 2.30 a.m. At that point, the female driver, the black female friend, and Johnson got back into the car, and according to the white female, Johnson told her to go to Kroger on East Oakland Avenue, but after they arrived, Johnson told her to park behind Kroger because he was going inside one of the apartments to see a girl to get some money. She stated that she backed into the parking space so she could see where he was going. But Johnson didn't go into the apartment building. He went into Kroger instead. In an interview with Detective Crow, according to the victim, Johnson dressed all in black, including a black waist-length coat and a black baseball-type cap, entered the store, and after a few minutes, came to his register and purchased a two-liter bottle of pop and several other items. After the purchase was complete, Johnson gave the clerk two dimes and a nickel and asked for a quarterback. When the clerk opened the cash drawer and turned around to give Johnson the quarter, Johnson shot him and reached into the drawer to grab the bunny. The clerk told police that at first, he thought the gun was fake and wasn't even aware that he was shot. So when Johnson reached into the cash drawer, the clerk grabbed Johnson's hand. He then realized he was shot and let go of Johnson's hand, letting him take the money. Johnson attempted to flee and tried unsuccessfully to get out of the inn door, When he realized he couldn't get out, he turned around, pointed the gun at the clerk again, and pulled the trigger twice. But the gun jammed. Johnson then fled out of the fire escape door. The female driver told police that Johnson was gone eight to ten minutes, then came running back towards the car from a different direction he had left in, and that Johnson was coming from around the apartment building, not out of it. The black female passenger moved over as Johnson jumped into the car. So at this time, all three were in the front seat. They said he looked scared and out of breath. And when he got in the car, he said, go, 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 and directed the driver to go to Woodhill and hurry because the girl was going to meet them there. The driver told police she thought it was strange that they were hurrying to catch someone they had just left. And also, she thought it was strange that Johnson didn't get the money from the girl while they were there. Johnson directed her to go south on Lincoln, continuously telling her to hurry. When the police turned on their lights, 
the black female passenger asked Johnson if he had anything on him, and he replied he had some dope. She then told him to swallow it or put it in his pants. She then saw Johnson put some money down the front of his pants. The squad car that stopped the 1979 two-door maroon Pontiac Bonneville turned on his spotlight and slowly approached the vehicle. By that time, other officers had arrived to assist with the arrest. When the black female exited the car, she looked at the officer and said, We're no robbers. And when the officer asked her where they were coming from, she responded, We weren't at Kroger's. We were at those apartments by there. But police had not yet informed any of them why they were stopped, just that a crime had been committed. The female driver handed officers the keys and gave them permission to search the car. Although they didn't find a weapon, they did find a black baseball cap and also noted Johnson was dressed all in black. When they patted Johnson down, they found a bundle of cash hidden inside his underwear in the crotch area. In total, $130, mostly $1 bills, was recovered from Johnson. Johnson was then taken to the police station in the squad car. During the drive, Officer Rusk tried twice to advise Johnson of his rights, but when asked if he understood his rights, Johnson refused to respond. The two females were asked to drive to the station, escorted by another officer. After the police brought them in, the white female said the black female told her to say that Johnson came out of the same door that he went in and to tell police that he was walking, not running. When the two females arrived at the station to give statements, an officer was told to sit with them until directed by Crow to book them. While sitting there, one of the females said that Johnson wasn't the type of person to rob a store or a gas station. The officer noted on his report that nothing had been said about a gas station, but that he did take an attempted robbery at South Hill Amico two days before and had notified CID that he felt Johnson was a viable suspect due to the description he was given, the close proximity to Johnson's residence, and also that a small caliber revolver, like the one in the Kroger robbery, was used in that one as well. Put a pin in this because it becomes important later. The officer reported that he was with this unnamed female for about an hour and a half, and during that time, she appeared very nervous, was talking incessantly, and there were at least three times that she went into uncontrollable fits of physically shaking. Truth be told, innocent or not, I would probably be having a panic attack too. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snow Files wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snow Files podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. Back at Kroger. Officers were working to secure the crime scene in anticipation of who else but Officer McKinney's arrival. During this time, a small H&R 9-shot revolver, 22 caliber, was recovered from the dumpster on the west side of the Kroger building. 
The same officer observed a large hole in a fence behind Kroger. He noted on the ground under the hole was a piece of cardboard with foot impressions on it. Next to the hole was a large kitchen knife stuck into the ground. What does that have to do with this crime? I have no idea. They had to share because it's a whole other level of creepy. When McKinney arrived at the scene, he took electrostatic prints and actually processed the cash register, the conveyor belt, the steel emergency exit door, and collected the two-liter bottle, two receipts from the conveyor belt, one for a two-liter of BK Cola and the other for Parmesan cheese and whipped cream, some pennies, and a baseball cap. Additionally, clothes and shoes from Johnson and the victim were collected, uh, shell casings, and a bullet fragment recovered from the victim's chest area. And the 1979 Maroon Pontiac Bonneville was processed. One of the footwear impressions matched Johnson's boot, and one of the items from Exhibit 4, which was the two cash register receipts for pennies and one Kroger plastic bag, matched Johnson's fingerprint. It wasn't until 6.55 a.m. that Detectives Crow and Davis removed Johnson from his cell and placed him in the interrogation room. By this time, two witnesses, including the victim, had already identified Johnson as the shooter. But the two girls continued to deny they knew that Johnson was committing a robbery. Johnson immediately asked what he was being charged with and was told attempted murder and armed robbery. Johnson wanted to know where he was supposed to have robbed someone and who he tried to kill, and stated that he had never tried to kill anyone or robbed any place. Crow told Johnson that the two females that were with him were talking and that they had been identified by a witness, and also that his gun was recovered and his fingerprints would be on that gun. Johnson told them that he got the money from a girl at the apartments a few minutes before he was stopped. But when asked how much money she gave him, Johnson didn't have an answer. Then Johnson said, you didn't find no fucking gun. And Crow told him it was found in the dumpster. Still, Johnson continued to deny participating in the crime, but eventually came clean after Crow began suggesting it may have been an accident. At 7.28 a.m., Johnson gave a police statement. Johnson also denied the girls knew that he was going to commit a robbery. When asked about the shooting, Johnson responded, He thought it was a joke, and he grabbed the gun, and I grabbed the money, and it just went off. He also admitted he was robbed the previous night at Warner Homes in Peoria, and they took his clothes and $400. When asked if he had anything to add, Johnson said he would like to see the clerk to apologize to him, that he didn't know what was going through his head. Johnson was charged that morning with attempted murder and armed robbery of Kroger, and was also charged with armed robbery of the Super 8 Motel on IAA Drive. According to police, he used a handgun to steal less than $40 from the motel. He was identified by the manager. 
So why go into all this detail about the Kroger crime? We think there are similarities to Kroger and Clark Oil. Johnson was a spontaneous armed robber. He didn't seem to care about preparation. He seemed more of a grab-and-go kind of guy. There doesn't appear to be very much preparation in the Clark crime either. $130 was taken in the Kroger, $40 in the Super 8, and less than $100 in Clark. In both crimes, a small caliber handgun was used. In both crimes, the clerk was shot in the chest. Both were very violent, with seemingly an intent to kill. The difference with Kroger is that the gun jammed twice when he tried to shoot the clerk again. A getaway car was used. Recall, Susan Claycomb was accused of being the getaway driver in the trial. However, they could never link the car to the crime. People kept mentioning a brown sedan. Pilo saw one pass with a white female driver that looked surprised, like, oh shit, it's the cops. Another cop also stated he saw a brown sedan-style car pass by, but he couldn't get the license plate. The cab driver, Wiley Holt, said he saw a black man sitting in a brown sedan when he was there. A kid riding a bike said he was almost hit by a brown sedan that was speeding away. The suspect seemingly shot little and disappeared. How did he get away so fast if he was on foot? (laughs) Lastly, all of these armed robberies happened within less than a five-mile radius of Johnson's residence. Kroger was 2.2 miles. The Super 8 was 3.5 miles. And we don't have the actual address, but according to a Bloomington local, the Amico South Hill neighborhood is located about a quarter mile south of McLean County Jail. That's less than a mile from Johnson's former residence. Finally, the Clark Oil Station was 1.7 miles from Johnson's residence. Johnson was finally sentenced in February of 93. He took a plea deal to 25 years for armed robbery and aggravated discharge of a firearm and 15 years for armed robbery of the Super 8 Motel to be served concurrently. At his sentencing hearing, Johnson turned to the victim, Derek Brooks. I didn't mean for the gun to go off that way. Sorry, Derek. State's attorney Sook asked Johnson if the Kroger holdup was sparked by being robbed earlier that night in Peoria and what led to the Super 8 Motel robbery two days before the crime. I'm not going to talk about that one. Johnson went on to deny the Super 8 motel robbery, and prosecutors dismissed the Amico armed robbery in the plea deal. Incredibly, that wasn't the end of Johnson's violent criminal career. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snowfiles merch. It isn't clear when Johnson was released, but his IDOC record shows that he caught a possession of controlled substance charge in McLean County in 2006 where he was sentenced to three years. 
In June of 2008, Johnson was arrested in Sangamon County for a robbery that occurred in Springfield. According to reports, Johnson tried to cash a check at the Quick and Easy convenience store and was refused even though he had two forms of ID. After he left the store, an 83-year-old man walked into the store and purchased a couple of newspapers and a coffee. When the man left the store, Johnson approached and asked him about buying him something, but the man couldn't hear him and he just told him no. When the elderly man turned to walk away, Johnson pushed him towards his car from behind, took his wallet from his left pocket, ran, and jumped into the back seat of a silver vehicle. The vehicle was stopped a couple of hours later, and the driver claimed he didn't know anything about Johnson stealing anything. The driver went on to tell police that Johnson just told him that he had to go to the bathroom, and a short time later, Johnson jumped in the car and said, get me out of here. When the officer questioned Johnson, he responded that it was the officer's job to find out what happened and that he wasn't going to talk to him. There was no money in the man's wallet. Johnson must have bonded out of that one because just a month later, he caught another possession charge in McLean County. He was sentenced to four years for that charge and 12 years for the robbery of a victim 60 years or older. Again, he must have been discharged because in 2017, he was convicted of aggravated robbery with a firearm and was sentenced to 13 years. We don't know the details of that case. Sangamon County responded that arrest was performed by Springfield PD. We'll have to file there for details of that crime. But are you starting to see the pattern here? Johnson was mad because he got robbed in Peoria and the same night robbed, shot, and attempted to kill the Kroger clerk. He got mad because the clerk wouldn't cash his check, so he assaulted and robbed an elderly man. Johnson doesn't seem interested in the amount of money he might get. He doesn't seem to plan his crimes, and he has little regard for human life. The prison system has been a revolving door for Johnson. In fact, He is eligible for parole in 2023, and this most recent sentence will be completely discharged in 2026. Yet Jamie sits in prison with a life without parole sentence for a crime he didn't even commit. It's fascinating that Crow investigated and closed this case while Bill Little's murder remained open. Did he not see the similarities between the two? Did he just ignore them? Or was he so convinced the Clark Oil crime was committed by a white man that he didn't even entertain the thought that they may have been committed by the same person? And who did Bernardini interview? And where is that supplement report? Are the answers contained in the 8,000 documents that Jamie has yet to review? Let us know what you think about the case for Maurice Johnson as an alternative suspect. You can view and read the newspaper articles, police reports, and graphics related to this episode on the episode page at snowfalls.net. And please give Snowfalls Podcast a five-star rating on Apple or Podchaser for you Android users. Every rating puts us higher in the charts, gets us more traffic, and helps us get the word out about Jamie's case. Someone knows something. 
And don't forget, peace and justice for Jamie Snow. Write it, say it, scream it every single day. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. Within two weeks of the Clark murder, a witness very close to Maurice Johnson came forward stating he had confessed to the crime. Other than one follow-up interview, nothing else was done with this lead as far as we know. Less than a year later, Johnson robbed a Kroger, shooting the clerk once in the chest with a 22, and had attempted to shoot the clerk twice more in the chest, but the gun jammed. Detective Crow investigated the Kroger case. Do you think he noticed the glaring similarities? Johnson was 19 years old when he went in, and upon release, continued his crime spree with drug possession, robbing an 83-year-old man, and is currently locked up for aggravated robbery with a firearm, with a parole date in 2023 and a discharge date of 2026. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Within the first few weeks of Bill's murder, several people were identified by witnesses who were allegedly on the scene at the time of the crime. How are they cleared? That's next time on Snow Files.